1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how women can flip the house from red to blue. Stephanie Shriok will explain. She's president of EMILY's List. Also, how big wireless made us think cell phones were safe. Mark Hertzgaard will report on a special investigation by The Nation. But first, how progressives should think about Russia. For that, we turn to Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's editor and publisher of The Nation and also a weekly columnist for The Washington Post online. She's a frequent commentator on American and international politics for ABC, MSNBC, CNN, and PBS. Katrina, welcome back.
2: Thank you, John.
1: Well, it's easy to be against Trump's actions, including his actions overseas, but progressives need to think about what we are for, what kind of foreign policy we want, especially if a left-leaning Democrat were to be elected president in 2020. The big issue, of course, is Russia, which almost everybody agrees interfered with the 2016 election to help Trump. So let's start with Putin. How would you describe Putin?
2: Oh, you know, I think Putin is a, uh, Authoritarian figure, I think history is important. Um, he was selected by the Yeltsin team, coming out of the disastrous 1990s, a period when the oligarchs of Russia, given license by Yeltsin, plundered and looted that country. He, um, his first act in power, John, when he was appointed in 2000, was to give Yeltsin immunity, yeah. and I think that says quite a bit. It's important. It's, it seems to me when you think of Putin to remember that uh, the Soviet Union. The state collapsed twice in the 20th century, in 1917 and again in 1991 when the Soviet Union was abolished. So he's an authoritarian figure. I think he's a referee in some instances. I don't think, you know, he doesn't have what some call totalitarian power. Uh, He's refereeing among a network of old oligarchs. He's created a new network of oligarchs. Uh, we just saw the other day the tragedy in Kemerovo in Siberia, the horrible shopping mall fire in which children died, that, you know, the governor was ousted. What role Putin played, probably a strong one. But, you know, he is uh, a, a formidable figure, and that doesn't mean approval, but it means that he is a player. And though Russia is viewed as a kind of second-rate, third-rate power, China, of course, looming as the great power, Uh, Russia, you know, has stabilization reserves. It has very little deficit. It has, as a result of sanctions, uh, developed an internal market, which it didn't have before. But, you know, the the U.S.-Russian relationship has made Putin increasingly nationalistic. Uh, I say that because I think he did come to power wanting to relate and engage with the West. I think it's wrong to argue that he was anti-Western, anti-U.S. Well,
1: at our end of the Russia relationship, Trump has just appointed John Bolton his national security advisor. That makes us all uh, unhappy. How do you read this?
2: Well, I wrote a column for the WashingtonPost.com called Trump's Most Dangerous Betrayal Yet. And, you know, the candidate Trump promised to get us out of stupid wars is now apparently loading up for war because this guy Bolton is an uber hawk. You know, he played a key role in cooking intelligence to mislead this nation into the disaster of Iraq. But in terms of Russia, John, coming back to this issue of uh, Putin's relationship with the West, I think one of the important moments, and it's a moment that Bolton played a role in, was the abrogation of the, in 2002, of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. It was a treaty of 1972, and it really was the template for arms control protocol between the two countries and in disrupting and ending and subverting that bolton is a man who doesn't like any treaties or nuclear deals as we can see with his attitude toward iran uh, it was it it set the us russian relationship on a terrible course and finally Af- uh, iraq again bolton playing a role in that i think one of the key rupture moments between the united states and russia just playing out a little history was the munich security conference when Trump, with uh, Senators McCain and Lieberman in the front row, basically lectured the West about its unilateral approach to international relations and really saying that the international order post-World War two, sure, both countries had violated, but Iraq was a true disruptor. So I think that's important to to remember and the rise of the neocons around Bush just, you know, intensified the bad relationship. But now we're in, you know, and let's talk about it. We're in a, a moment of new Cold War, uh, which is increasingly dangerous on a number of fronts. I've just written a lead editorial for next week, but we could we could talk about that in addition to why the left needs to think in new ways about Russia, which is a piece by David Kleon, which we ran this uh, this past week. Apart from
1: Bolton and Trump, there there's a kind of bipartisan consensus in Washington that we need to be uh, tough with Russia, in quotes. Toughness means new sanctions. It means increased arms sales to Ukraine. It means uh, NATO expansion. It means more pressure on the Assad regime in Syria. It means a new cyber offensive against Russia in retaliation for 2016. What do we think about the the bipartisan consensus uh, that we have to get
2: tougher with Russia? So let me just step back and say, as President Obama used to call the bipartisan foreign policy consensus, the blob. Hmm. Um, no, I mean, I think to a large extent the bipartisan foreign policy consensus has been discredited on a number of fronts. I think of Iraq. I think of the endless war, which is not making this country more secure. And if I could, just as... A, editor of the nation i believe the magazine's role is to challenge conventional wisdom in this case the kind of bipartisan consensus and to foster not police debate and in this instance to oppose the vilification of proponents of better u.s russian relations now that said i think it's important in calling for dialogue and the ratcheting down of an escalating cold war at this moment that it not show disregard for russian interference in u.s elections or for the possibility John, that the Trump campaign, even the president himself, may have colluded with the Kremlin. The Mueller investigation goes on. But engaging in dialogue doesn't mean we have to ignore Russian malfeasance and state-sponsored criminality. I also think, as David Kleon in his story for us the other day, how progressives should think about Russia, reframes the kind of Russiagate discussion in a really interesting way because he's talking about how we we need to think about it in the context of this transnational oligarchy, in the context of the dangers of global capitalism. And I think, you know, he writes that the U.S. has little standing to condemn Russia's oligarchs while the Trump administration openly loots the public with a tax reform bill designed to benefit the wealthiest Americans. He also argues that going after the money, oligarchical money, is far more likely to produce meaningful results than expelling diplomats, the strategy which we've certainly seen the U.S. and its European allies uh, reach for in these last days. So I think his reframing is worth people, whether you're on the left or progressive or not, it's worth reading his piece because he's not agnostic about the use of sanctions. He doesn't think they're compelling unless really targeted at oligarchs. He's not agnostic on the use of information warfare the dangers but he is against NATO expansion a key driver of bad US-Russian relations he's against deeper involvement in the wars in Ukraine and Syria and he's finally kind of against the general impulse to hold Russia primarily responsible for what are ultimately you know scandals or corruption committed in the US by the current administration so it's an interesting reframing and worth reading Uh, in this very fraught, very fraught moment. And you know a great deal about Russia. You've
1: been writing about Russia for a couple of decades now and reporting from Russia for a couple of decades now. What do you think our attitude should be, our engagement should be with the opposition to Putin? Now, there's, you know, the opposition leaders running for president, uh, Navalny, was barred from running journalists and politicians have been murdered, yet you don't seem to think the American policy should seek regime change in russia no what no. do you think
2: I think first of all that there should be what you know what we call civil society i think let me let me just step back you know i I worry about cold wars as bad for progressives because they empower the worst kind of militaristic forces on both sides, nationalist fervor rises, space for dissent closes. I've worked with Russian dissidents, courageous journalists for independent newspapers, feminist NGOs for three decades. I've been reporting out of Moscow, visiting, help publish Our Bodies Ourselves, Betty Friedan's book, and Simone de Beauvoir's in Russian. But I've seen how Cold War then, now, has been used to suppress independent voices in that country. I think citizens Civil society should have relations and support in solidarity those forces inside Russia seeking justice, seeking inde- independent rights, opposing repression, opposing oligarchy and I think that is is vital, but I thought one of the best parts of bernie sanders foreign policy challenges during the campaign was in his talking out against regime change as American foreign policy. that should not be American foreign policy. The, uh, the best way it seems to me that the United States can help the independent forces in Russia is by normalizing relations enough that private civil society groups in the U.S. and other countries can more effectively work in tandem with Russian counterparts. I also think I have to say that the opposition in Russia, and I know some of the key figures, and my uh, good Russian independent journalist friend Nadia Shkikin has been writing for TheNation.com about this. You know, Grigory Yavlinsky. Uh, is, is someone who got no attention this time because Navalny, you know, is viewed as the leading opponent. But, John, the ability to come together to find a strong opposition force is incumbent on the opposition inside Russia. It is not America's role, it's not the West's role to build an opposition team, right? right? right. I mean, you know, that, it seems to me that people in their own country should lead the way and fight their own struggles, support it in solidarity, not opposed, but not, you know, kind of supplanted by outside forces. And I think the danger in these moments is that often independent forces inside Russia are views, viewed or, or stigmatized as kind of influenced or involved with the Western ways. That's, you know, that, that should be put aside. Solidarity is needed, but how we do it is very tricky.
1: Let's also talk about cyber security and cyber war here. What is a progressive position on increasing our cyber security, especially in our elections?
2: Well, I think, you know, there's rightly concern about our democracy infrastructure, John. But instead of kind of, I think we should double down and invest in it, don't you? I mean, one thing that strikes me is that Who can forget the selection of the president in 2000 and all the chads and all the the coup that the Supreme Court essentially implemented against democracy? Since 2000, there has been woefully little done to secure the infrastructure of our democracy. There are basic steps you know we need to take, paper ballots, audits, all of this. So if this can spur us to do so, great. The danger is that there's a lot of rhetoric and not much action. So I think that's vital, one piece of it. I think clamping down on dark money would be essential because that's part of what we see Mueller engaging with is financial crimes, money laundering, lobbyist money. But I think David Kleon again, and this is in the air right now, John, because it's so fascinating to feel the zeitgeist move against these Facebook and Google behemoths. But the idea of really beginning to regulate these behemoths you know, like utilities, and breaking these monopolies up would play a role in pushing back against Russian hackers who've exposed, exposed a flaw in the U.S. political system. Again, I step back and I, you know, I just, I don't feel it makes sense to basically compare bots to missiles, and the warfare analogies worry me. We are confronting threats and challenges. But let's not lose our head, let's not lose the resilience, which makes us a great country, and not Trump greatness, but really great, in the fight against uh, the problems we've seen in our electoral system. I also think, though people laugh, you know, there was a cyber treaty on offer during the Obama years. The U.S.-Russian sides had tried to negotiate rules of the road. I think that's very tough to think about right now, but... This is an area where we need diplomacy and we need rules of the road, just as we have with other arenas.
1: How progressives should think about Russia, Katrina Vanden Katrina, thanks so much for talking with us today.
2: Thank you, John.
1: Now it's time to talk about how big wireless made us think cell phones were safe. That's the subject of a special investigation by The Nation. It's the cover story in the new issue of the magazine. For that, we turn to Mark Hertzgard. He's The Nation's investigative editor-at-large, the author of seven books that have been translated into 16 languages. His most recent books are Braveheart's Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden and Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. We reached him today in San Francisco. Mark, welcome
0: back. Thanks for having me, John.
1: Well, the World Health Organization in 2011 classified cell phone radiation as a possible human carcinogen, and the governments of Great Britain, France, and Israel have issued strong warnings on cell phone use by children. To be clear at the top of this segment, are you saying cell phones cause cancer?
0: I'm not saying that. What, what our story in the nation reports is how the wireless industry, the cell phone industry, has manipulated the public understanding of that debate around cell phone safety. And in particular, as you look, you see that the big wireless companies use the very same playbook that big oil used around climate change to lie about climate change, and that big tobacco previously used to lie about cigarettes. And essentially, the, the game is to create the appearance of scientific uncertainty in order to blunt any calls for uh, government regulation. And uh, that's what we found in our documented story. But our story very specifically says we are not arguing whether cell phones are safe or not safe. That is for scientists to decide. But what we are telling you in this expose is how the industry has war game science and manipulated government policymakers, and spun the news media so that you think that these phones are safe.
1: You say the cell phone industry doesn't have to win the scientific argument about safety. What do you mean?
0: That's the key strategic insight that, again, Big Wireless got from Big Tobacco and and, uh, Big Oil. If you are trying to fend off regulation like these industries are, what you want to do is to create doubt that your product is guilty. And that's what I mean by you don't have to win the argument that uh cigarette smoking is safe or that climate change isn't real. What you have to do, and we saw this very explicitly with the um oil companies and climate change, is that you keep putting your bought scientists on uh the air and in the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal and so forth saying our studies show that that uh, the environmentalists are exaggerating again. And the purpose of that is not to win the argument. You can't win the argument that cigarette smoking uh, isn't related to cancer. But you can delay that argument. You're buying time so that you can keep your products uh, going out the door and selling uh, for as long as possible. You keep the the, uh, scientific argument going.
1: Well, I've seen reports that instead of citing one or two articles, look at the hundreds of articles about cell phone safety that have been published in scientific journals over the last, what, decade or two. A slight majority of the several hundred safety studies of cell phones, a slight majority did find a biological effect from cell phone radiation but only a slight majority, so that makes it appears like the scientific community is indeed split over this.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the, uh, it's interesting. If we, we, we uh, As I say, our piece is not about whether uh, this is safe or not, but we did go and look at the data that is held by the National Institutes of Health, in, uh, which, of course, is a U.S. government agency. And most of the uh, studies there do show biological effects of cell phone radiation. Not all of them, but a definite majority of them do show that. You would not know that from media coverage, but the more interesting thing to me is that one of our sources found that when you recategorize scientific studies and you look at where did the funding for that study come from, then the results change dramatically. And essentially, if it's an independent study, independently funded study i should say versus an industry funded study the industry funded studies were two and a half times less likely to find any kind of of health impacts and so that gets back to the point i was trying to make earlier about the uh, wargaming of science and the scientific uncertainty what industry can do when studies come out as they did just last week a u.s government study from uh, the national toxicology program that a peer review found had quote-unquote clear evidence of cancer on the part of cell phone radiation when those kinds of studies come out or when the world health organization uh, says in two thousand eleven that cell phone radiation is a quote possible unquote carcinogen the industry can always say and does say as we describe in our story well that's just one report the overall balance of evidence shows that in fact there's no proven health concern here with cell phones And they're able to say that and say it accurately precisely because there are studies out there that find no effect. What the industry will not tell you, though, is that they're the ones who funded a lot of those studies.
1: There's another ingenious argument in your cover story for The Nation, and that's your look at the insurance industry and their position on this question. Does the insurance industry think there's a debate, it's undecided, we can't tell whether cell phones are are linked to cancer?
0: Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my co-author there. That was Mark Dowie's idea. went around to all of the major insurance companies and asked, would you sell me uh health insurance for product liability and health insurance for cell phones and not one of the companies said yes including the, the venerable lloyds of london which of course made its reputation for hundreds of years as the firm that will insure anything and uh <laughs> actually one of the people that uh, dowie talked to said he chuckled one of these industry executives and said why would we do that and why would we why would we sell you that uh... and precisely because they know that there are many lawsuits pending in courts uh, both in the here in the united states and overseas that are trying to hold the cell phone industry uh, legally liable for usually its brain cancers now your question john was does the industry does the insurance industry believe that phones are safe you know the insurance industry excuse me does not take a position on that but the insurance industry looks very carefully at what is going on in the legal world and the scientific world. And they see, for example, that uh, in a courtroom in Italy, the judge of a case involving uh, a brain tumor, a brain cancer victim who's suing the industry, the judge did not allow industry-funded science to be introduced into his courtroom. And once you don't allow that, things are going to look very different from the standpoint of the evidence that uh, adjudicates the case. So that I think is why why insurance companies are saying we're not going to get in the middle of this. There's billions of dollars at stake and we're not going to bet that the uh wireless industry is telling the truth about this.
1: Last question, 5G. We're getting ready. We're excited about the 5G rollout. This is the fifth generation cell phone technology that is going to be so much faster than what we have now. We'll be able to have 3D gaming on our cell phones. What could be better than that? What's the situation with the, our understanding of the health risks of fifth generation 5G technology?
0: There it's very important to remember what was perhaps the most astonishing fact I came across in our investigation here. Cell phones were allowed onto the U.S. consumer market in the 1980s without any pre-marketing safety testing by the government. That's part of the reason that we're in this problem now with cell phones. And that is exactly what is about to happen again with 5G technology. We are about to roll out. 5G technology all across the country without doing safety testing of it. And this is something that uh, we quote a petition signed by hundreds of scientists around the world who've published over 2,000 peer-reviewed journal articles and they are warning that the anticipated shift to 5G will quote-unquote massively increase the amount of radiation the general population gets, not just people using cell phones, because with 5G the type of of radio waves used are different than the current uh, ones. And therefore, in order for 5G to work and to give this kind of coverage where your smartphone and your smart home and your smart vehicle will all be talking to each other and even your wet baby's diapers will send a message to, you know, mom in the next room that the diapers need changing, for all that to work, there's going to have to be these mini cell transmitters about the size of a pizza box that will be installed every 250 feet on city streets, on suburban neighborhoods, in order for there to be complete coverage that the 5G model requires. And that, I think, is really something that we need to stop and think about before we do. The result, according to one of the scientists quoted in our story, Joel Moskowitz of the University of California, Berkeley, says, because these transmitters will be located every 250 feet on you know, telephone poles or streetlights. Essentially, everyone will be bathed in a smog of radiation, twenty-four-seven. Let's think about that before we go down that road.
1: Mark Hertzgard is co-author of "How Big Wireless Made Us Think That Cell Phones Are Safe," a special investigation. It's the cover story in the Nation magazine this week. Mark, thanks for this report and thanks for talking with us today.
0: My pleasure, John.
1: Now it's time to talk about how women can flip the house from red to blue. For that, we turn to Stephanie Shriok. She's president of EMILY's List. Since she became president in 2010, EMILY's List has helped elect record numbers of women to the House and Senate, and recruited and trained hundreds of pro-choice Democratic women to run for office, including Elizabeth Warren, who Stephanie personally recruited to run. More than $250 million has been raised under Stephanie's leadership, and Emily's list now has more than 5 million members. Stephanie Shriak, welcome to the program.
3: John, thank you so much for having me on today.
1: What's the big picture for the midterm elections coming up in seven months from your perspective?
3: Well, I think this election is about the momentum of women across this country, and And it's not just the women candidates, though, obviously, at Emily's List, I care a lot about those women candidates, but I just want to step back and say this is just an unprecedented moment from the moment of the terrible loss of November 2016, we have seen women find their empowerment, find their voice, realize that they are in this together. You know, they marched uh, in Washington, D.C., and millions and millions of women marched across this country and around the world. Uh, they went back home, they started organizing their communities. And what we've seen at Emily's List uh, in that time period is more than 34,000 women who have reached out to Emily's List saying, hey, I need my voice heard, I want to run for office. And when I say this is unprecedented, it truly is like nothing we have ever seen before.
1: 34,000 women have come to Emily's List interested in running for office since 2016. What do you do with all these people? It seems overwhelming.
3: Uh, it is uh, it has caused some uh, challenges, uh, shall I say, at yes. Emily's list <laughs> in the last year and a half. But you know what? We'll take it. We'll take it. It has really just been been one of the most inspiring things that I have ever been involved with, and I would argue sort of my staff as well, uh, because what we've been able to do is really build out some community uh, and programs around that to ensure that those thirty four thousand. And by the way. It's more every single day. Women sign up every single day. And what we've done is expand our state and local work, because m- most of these women, when they run, and they're not all running in 2018, but they're going to be the next decades of candidates, uh, they're running for local office, a lot of them. They're running for school boards, city council, county uh, commission offices. You know, we've got a handful that are running for federal office, uh, but this is really about the legislatures and the county work. So we uh, have now quadrupled the size of our state and local team. We built out a digital program so we could do more webinars. Uh, We built out a training center. If you go to emilyslist.org, you can sign up and get access. uh, As a pro-choice democratic woman running for office, access to our training center that walks you through how to put together those campaigns. Uh, We built out our training programs where in 2017 alone, we trained nearly 2,500 women in one year in 24 uh, different trainings across the country. And that's just the beginning, because we are just ensuring that these women, even if they're not running now, they're going to help women who are running now. And that's the power of this movement. And that's why I believe we're going to take the House back. We're going to pick up some Senate seats. We're going to pick up a bunch of governor seats. We're going to pick up a lot of legislative seats. But it's the energy of these women that are backing up those candidates.
1: Before we talk about some of those races, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little more about the training that you offer. What is the EMILY's List training?
3: It's a great question. Our in-person trainings come in a couple forms, but the one uh, that we do the most of is sort of our, our 101. So you're thinking about running for office. What do you do now? <laughs> right? yeah. This is a very basic, like, how do I figure out... As a you know, as a woman living in my community, what I should even run for? You know, so many of these women haven't really thought through, like, do I want to serve in the city council? Should I do county work? Should I go to the state legislature? Can I do that? Can I afford to do that? How do I balance my family with all of this? And so we really walk through the decision making points uh, as a woman goes through uh, and decides. When she can run, what she's running for, and then the basics of how do I start putting that campaign together. For those that are looking for more in depth trainings, uh, we often partner with friends over at Emerge America uh, who have a great seven month training that folks can be involved with. You know, every woman's different. Some feel like they're ready to go now and just need a little bit of help. Others need that Emily's List eight hour training and they're ready to go. Others want a longer training. That's great because the good news is there's all these organizations working together to get that done. So that's really what our training's about. And for places that we can't get to, for instance, Anchorage, Alaska, which I have all intentions of getting to someday, but probably not this year. But we've got women in Anchorage who want to run. And so we've also laid out a whole series of webinars so we can get, be in touch with women wherever they are uh, in their, in their homes and talking through the same thing.
1: I know that Emily's list does not support all women candidates. Just let's be specific for a minute here. Which women candidates do you not support?
3: Well, if they're an anti-choice Republican, we're not gonna support you. If you're anti-choice, we're not gonna support you. Well, if you're a Republican, we're not gonna support you. (laughs) We really, our mission's very clear. We support pro-choice Democratic women. It's a three for three deal. You gotta meet all three of those those pieces uh, to be considered for endorsement. But even then, we don't endorse every single candidate. We really do look at uh, how that candidate is is putting together her operation. Does she have a good reason uh, for running? And we will help set that up. I mean, we'll help provide that, but we've got to also see that the woman candidate is doing the right things. And so we really monitor and assess those races and those candidacies before we do a full endorsement and go to our 5 million members and say, we think this woman has a shot. We just can't do that for everybody, and we've got to be really clear about that.
1: Well, I want to talk about some of the candidates that you have endorsed and that you are supporting in 2018. I want to start with uh, Minnesota We have a feature here called Your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul. One of the most flippable House seats in the entire country is in the suburbs south of St. Paul in Minneapolis. It's been Republican for decades, but the incumbent resigned in 2016, and a horrible new Republican was narrowly elected in 2016, a right-wing radio uh, talk show host. Running against him now in a rematch is one of the candidates you have endorsed, Angie Craig. Tell us about Angie Craig. Oh,
3: I'm so glad you brought up this race, uh, because this Republican incumbent is just completely out of step with that district. This is not a ultra right-wing district, and he is exactly that. So I'm glad you brought that up. And Angie Craig, Oh, an extraordinary candidate, you know, a, a businesswoman uh, who's raised her family in the district, uh, and has just an incredible way of listening and understanding what families are going through in in those communities. You know, when I uh, met her the first time she ran, this is her second run. I saw someone who has such a bright future because she cares so deeply about the future of everyone's family. And, and we think this is one of the best pickup opportunities in the country. You think about it. Democrats need 23, 23 seats to win the majority back. Thank you to Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania who knocked that down one. And I'm very appreciative. So we're down to 23. Uh, and boy, that, that Minnesota seat is one of those 23 in our minds
1: and tell us about some of the other candidates you're supporting for the house who are who are in the the top rank of the people you've endorsed.
3: You know, it's really interesting because when we started doing our recruitment for this cycle, you know, the first round of districts that we looked at were the there happens to be equal number. There are 23 districts in the country. That Hillary Clinton won that are held by Republicans, sort of was our starting point of recruitment. Uh, and a lot of those are out in California, yeah. and they're, they're multi candidate primaries, but some really extraordinary candidates, you know, candidates like Katie Porter, who lives uh, out in California, 45. These are sort of the Orange County and those area uh, congressional districts. Uh, but Katie Porter, who's been endorsed by Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris uh who really you know is a law professor in her own right uh and has been involved when Kamala Harris senator harris uh was then attorney general had been involved in in the housing crisis and trying to help Californians through that time period really comes with great expertise. And so I think of someone like that, who's in one of these districts, that we have a real opportunity to swing because these are voters that voted for Hillary Clinton, really do not like the direction of the Trump administration, which is sort of all of us, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, and that's, those are the candidates that we are, you know, we're really, really excited about.
1: Last question. Who do you think should run for president in 2020?
3: I get that question a lot, and all I can say is, let's take back the Democratic majority in the House first and then worry about it after that.
1: (laughs) Stephanie Shriak, she's president of Emily's List. Stephanie, thanks so much for talking with us today.
3: Thank you, John. Anytime.
1: Finally, the time is now for minor league baseball players to form a union. That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at the Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor, The Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith, Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to start making sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.